After having talked to more than a dozen healthcare professionals, leaders, and innovators during the pandemic, Theo wanted to compile a piece to encapsulate how COVID-19 has affected healthcare, specifically through our partners. This piece aims to share how entrepreneurs adapted their ventures to the events of the pandemic, reflect on how the pandemic revealed key unmet needs and raised important issues within healthcare, and show how the pandemic spurred innovation and impacted investments in notable trends within healthcare. This pandemic has undoubtedly impacted and changed the world. Most industries were forced to adapt to the pandemic, healthcare being a major one of these. In the healthcare industry alone, we've seen inspiring innovation and adaptation. Through this past year, some of our partners were able to create events and platforms surrounding the pandemic to share information and raise awareness around certain issues. Dr. Sejal Hathi formed a podcast, Civic Rx, to bring these conversations to light. I was motivated to start Civic Rx in the spring of this past uh, year because I recognize that there are a lot of conversations swirling around the country about how to best respond to this pandemic, what the implications would be for an ailing healthcare system, what protections should be erected for essential workers, how to prop up in, in some cases, in uh, direct contention with public health, the, the economy. And I felt that my colleagues in medicine had a lot to contribute to and, and learn from those conversations, and yet there wasn't enough discussion happening on, con on, on campus around these larger issues. And so I started a fireside chat series, um, the Mass General Brigham, which is the consortium of hospitals that comprise Massachusetts General Hospital, Newton Wellesley Hospital, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I invited a series of speakers who were at the forefront of articulating and molding the tactical, the moral, and the social questions that would shape how we move forward during this pandemic. And I invited them to come talk to us and to do so in a fireside chat setting that fostered an intimate conversation. And these fireside chats were so successful and um, productive that on the recommendation of a couple of those speakers who attended, I decided to translate them into a podcast for broader public consumption. And so Civic Rx was born as a project and a podcast to ignite, to share and to amplify conversations about how we build a more wholesome and more equitable society in the wake of COVID-19. So every conversation features a, an amazing public leader, so a government official, an entrepreneur, a um, public intellectual or other leader whose work and ideas are informing the steps we take. And it's been a real privilege to be able to talk with folks like the incoming Surgeon General Vivek Murthy to Australia's first female prime minister, 
Julia Gillard, uh, to mental health policy wonks and our millennial mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, just about the work that they're doing and about the journey that has brought them to that work. And again, it's a lot of drudgery too on, on my side amid a residency that is not always forgiving or enabling of additional pursuits. So it's been it's been hard, but rewarding nonetheless. Pooja Chandra Shekhar founded the COVID-19 Health Literacy Project, which aims to alleviate the impact of language barriers on COVID-19 health outcomes. So at the start of the pandemic, um, in March, mid-March, as the pandemic began picking up steam here in Boston, where I'm based, I started speaking with a few local community-based organizations that I had had um, past connections to. And one of them was the Family Van. The Family Van is a mobile health clinic that serves uh, the greater Boston area, and their patient population has a sizable proportion that's immigrant, refugee, and minority populations. Um, And as you might expect, many of these patients are not native English speakers. And as I kind of, you know, began speaking with the staff and leadership and trying to tease out what were the main issues that the family van was focusing on and uh, experiencing during this challenging time, there was one theme that kept coming up over and over again. And it was that these patients were not being given materials or information in their native language simply because they did not exist. Um, So the staff highlighted you know, how difficult language barriers make it for these patients to know when and how to seek care, how to protect themselves and their loved ones. And the CDC at the time and most uh, state health departments were not releasing information in languages other than English and a few other major languages, uh, which really put these communities, which were already vulnerable for a whole host of other factors, at an even greater risk for infection and death. And we also know from a host of research that's been done on this topic um, from past epidemics like H1N1 and the swine flu, that language barriers have a real tangible impact on patients' health and directly contribute to health disparities. So it was these factors that motivated me, inspired me to start the COVID-19 literacy project. Um, And our mission was to create and translate accessible evidence-based COVID-19 information into different languages, of which we have around 40 right now, to help everybody, especially immigrants and non-English speakers, stay informed and healthy. Um, And we built the project through a collaboration with the Harvard Health Publisher. Leaders in healthcare and around the world have adapted their approach in order to foster an environment of collaboration and community in this COVID era. Dr. Sachin Jain, CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan, touches on these adaptations. I think it's been very hard to set, you know, kind of create that sense of community. But I think one of your jobs as a leader is to communicate, communicate, and communicate. Um, And you build trust by being transparent, and you build trust by sharing you know, your good news and sharing your bad news, acknowledging mistakes when they happen and acknowledging successes when they happen. Um, I think you give, you stay generous to others and give credit to others, um, you know, uh, where you might ordinarily kind of absorb it yourself. 
Um, these are some of the things you just have to do to create a culture in which people feel like they're you know, able and willing to do their best work. Bernita Brown, CEO of Natalist, expounds on how COVID has challenged her company and how she has adjusted her approach on creating a team-friendly environment despite the circumstances. We've been around two years. You know, we launched, we, we, we only launched publicly, like, you know, we spent almost a year in sort of R&D mode and then we launched. So we've been around only two years and we spent a year of that in quarantine. And, and that really, that's been a challenge for our team in multiple ways. One, our manufacturing partners have had delays at every angle, like you name it, there's been some type of delay. Um, a raw material may run out and they can't get their hands on it again because this factory shut down due to COVID and that, you know, um, our, our team has had a hard time doing user testing because it's just like harder. It's a lot harder to like coordinate mailing things and getting on a zoom call and people are zoomed out because they've been sitting on zoom calls all day at work and, you know, that sort of thing. And then it just, it does take a toll on your team. And, and I have tried to be really sensitive to the fact that, yes, we have goals to reach as a company, but also we are all walking through a collective trauma right now. And so like, if somebody's not showing up how you feel like they should show up, just like kind of taking a step back and <laughs> extending some grace, because some days this feels easy. Some days it's like, oh, I'm glad we worked from home. I didn't have to drive an hour in the car. And then some days it's like, I literally have been on calls for seven hours straight. I haven't gotten a bite to eat. I haven't used the bathroom. This is no way to live. Mm -hmm. Us being so young, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint what some of those other challenges would have been without COVID. But I do feel really lucky that we have such an amazing team and people who just like have grit and self-determination who are going to work hard and like get it done regardless. So. COVID has brought about many changes in the working environment, some of which may be here to stay. Bunny Ellerin, co-founder and president of New York City Health Business Leaders, explains how our redesigned virtual world can be an advantage when it comes to networking. It is harder. And also the motivation, to be honest, is lower because we're all on Zoom a lot. We're and or you've got families to deal with. You know, so like the whole motivation to even want to network, right, is lower. But it can be easier because they're not going out. You know, they've got more time. And so some people are more accessible than they would be in real life to meet or connect with. And so just like in real life, if somebody says something, you know, like if you're on a webinar, right, and you hear somebody say something really interesting, send them a LinkedIn with that you know, I heard you say X, Y, Z, really appreciated that you said that. And then if you want to connect with that person, like, do you have 15 minutes or, you know, whatever for a call? Think about what would be important to that person. So it is easier to reach out. And it's also easier now to hear a lot of different, if you want to hear a lot of different perspectives. 
Andrea Ippolito, CEO and founder of Simply Fed, similarly touches on the positives of this new virtual setting as she explains the process of founding a company as a mother during COVID and taking risks to form partnerships with adjacent organizations like Milk Stork. It was really easy for me to start a company during COVID because I have access to childcare support. And so I think that's missing in our economy. And so it's, I'm very lucky that I have access to childcare support. And I think, frankly, we need access to universal childcare support for all Americans. You know, so much, I will say, of being a startup is you know, networking. It's, it's 90% of it. But this one was pure luck. I, I you know, put in my name and email into the contact desk page on their website and um, before I knew it, I had an email back from them saying, hey, we'd love to chat about ways that we can collaborate. So uh, it goes to show you, yes, having a network is oh so critical and important, but um, never um, be afraid to put yourself out there, um, even as a, a pretty um, early stage company. She also expresses the challenges of the fundraising process, which in some ways have been mitigated because of COVID. Fundraising is never, ever easy. Um, I live in a pretty rural place, Ithaca, New York, which is wonderful, and I love living here, and it's just an incredible environment and ecosystem to be a part of. Um, the, the one thing about Ithaca, though, is that it is pretty rural. And so I, during COVID, while fundraising is never easy, you get told no all the time. And and you have to have this hard exterior, and it's okay that people are saying no because you know if it was easy, then it, then it would just be a different story. And and it's it's meant to be a little challenging. And and frankly, I learned a lot in the process of pitching. So I'll I'll, I'll try to I'm trying to silver lining it. Can you tell? Um, so um, the the one thing during COVID though is because I live in a rural area, investors were a lot more open. Um, to virtual pitches, which it, if it was non-COVID times, I would have to be traveling all over the country. And, and you know, especially as a parent with a, the two and a half year old, I'm also pregnant, um, it, it would have just been really hard to fundraise. And so um, there's, no, there's no positives about COVID. Um, however, it's been nice that investors have been very open to virtual pitches. And um, while there's so much in this country that's systematically stacked against underrepresented entrepreneurs, and and frankly, um, as a woman, I I um, with an Ivy League education, I don't consider myself um, underrepresented because I have tremendous privilege and tremendous access to networks and resources. Um, but I'm hoping this is one of those things that does say the same: is that people are more open to meeting virtually for pitching. And, um, and also, there's now a whole bunch of virtual programs that help enable people to get access to investors that didn't exist before. So I'm hoping those two things stay the same after COVID. Dr. Jerrica Kirkley, co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume, explains some of the impacts that COVID has had on transgender care. My co-founder and I, when we were first thinking about starting Plume, which at the very first, uh, you know, thought process um, was about February of last year, 2019. So well before, obviously, anybody could be thinking about COVID. 
And so we knew that the, I mean, the future of healthcare really, I mean, in, in many ways is virtual, right? And, and I think in a, maybe a better way to put it is just like doing a better job of meeting patients where they are. I think whether that's having a, a better community orientation of the care we're providing, um, you know, we talk a lot about identity resonant care, um, but also just logistically and, and with technology, meeting people where they are um, and reaching folks that, that can't get into the physical clinics. And we know that it's very useful, effective, high quality um, for a lot of clinical conditions. The physical space is always going to hold its place in the medical community. Um, but we knew that was a way forward. Um, but yeah, of course, when COVID hit, I mean, it highlighted that to the nth degree, right? I mean, you had clinics shutting down that weren't able to adapt um, that have been probably, you know, I mean, we, we've all been, this technology is not new, right. you know, uh, virtual medical care. We, we could have been doing this on a regular basis for 10, 15 plus years. Um, but there's been a lot of resistance because of stakeholders like insurance companies, uh, you know, and other exactly. hospital corporations that are uh, tend to motivate and, and kind of encourage how things are done in, in the healthcare world. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes, obviously patients and, and unfortunately felt the brunt of that who couldn't go to their clinic that they were going to on a regular basis, you know, who then try to get into other clinics who were swamped because they were having lots of people rush them because they were couldn't get into their clinics. Um, you know, again, folks who clinic systems have done varying jobs of, of leveling up on the technology side of things, you know, and unfortunately some have had to close down because they couldn't um, and didn't have the resources needed. Um, so it has impacted a lot of people, but it's also opened up stakeholders' eyes, you know, and I think obviously insurance companies are seeing the value of it. Um, you know, large hospital systems are seeing the value of it and, uh, and investors also, uh, you know, which is kind of the space that we're in. And so, right. so yeah, there's a lot of energy around it. Um, and we have had a lot of people come to us for those reasons as patients, like that they couldn't get into their facilities, um, or get visits and, um, or clinics closed. Uh, so in an unfortunate way, you know, it did bring people to us, but it's also, yeah, it's opened uh, the eyes up of a lot of people in, in a good way too, that I think will, will pave a road forward at gender affirming surgeries are medically necessary, you know, period. And, and that's something that fortunately more surgeons and insurance companies are um, waking up to and acknowledging. Um, but then right when you do overlay something like COVID and you have this triaging of quote unquote medical necessity, um, you know, that can sometimes go by the wayside, but it's super, super important that it, that it doesn't. And, and I think like there's, you know, there's always going to be triaging a medical need in any kind of like medical emergency or disaster environment. Um, but, it, but it is true that those are truly medically necessary, uh, necessary procedures, just as gender affirming hormone therapy is a medically necessary service for a lot of trans people. And, um, and having access to that is, is important. And so access in many ways, right, that could look like insurance coverage, but also just having medical providers who can provide that care, um, who, who, who are willing to provide the care without discrimination, of course. Um. Not only has the virus brought about physical changes to our lives, but it has revealed key unmet needs in healthcare and beyond. Dr. Sejal Hathi explains this silver lining. Also of our social security, of our food security, of our strained racial relations, of our national trust in government and of our institutional stability. I think so much of what we prided ourselves on as Americans, a robust democracy, a 
non-parel economy, like so many of those things have now their luster, or at least the flaws have better come to light. And I think that I'm grateful, therefore, for the conversation that those awakenings have spurred about what we can do to once again shape an America that lives up to our ideals and um, better hues to our founding values. And so for igniting that conversation, for maybe making the country more open to previously radical positions, I, I think the pandemic has done a lot. Specifically within healthcare, I think that the telemedicine revolution, so the wave of regulations that have been lifted and relaxed, for instance, by both Congress and by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, have been tremendous and have really accelerated a transition that would have taken probably many more years without the pandemic. So I'm hopeful for the sake of innovation in healthcare, for access to healthcare in rural America, for mental health care gains, I'm really hopeful that some of these gains that we've seen at both the federal and state levels in telehealth will be sustained post-pandemic. And I think that they're here to answer your question more pointedly to stay. So we will have to see, but I do believe that the COVID-19 pandemic has just really just, it's changed the conversation in entirely. And hopefully also it's exhumed public health from otherwise the decades of neglect and underinvestment that it had been buried under. I think we're going to see a lot more interest in public health, which, which, which may be relevant to you actually, as you probably saw the unprecedented numbers of medical school applications, Fauci effect. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot more public interest in, attention to, and investment in public health and in science. And I, I am hopeful that for crises like climate change, change, for instance, for which I think something like COVID-19 can be seen perhaps as a dress rehearsal, because you're really going to have to, it's all about carbon emissions are invisible just as the COVID-19 virus is invisible. And I think in order to gain traction against that invisible enemy, you need to believe in experts, even as those experts' guidance changes. You need to be able to restore trust in American credibility to cement um, international collaboration on reducing carbon emissions. You need to have of a whole of government approach. And so I am hopeful that a lot of these systems that have come under pressure will be reformed, that we will return to evidence-based and science-driven policy, and that future such crises, whether in health or across other domains, will be therefore much easier uh, to tackle. Similarly, Barbara Schoberg, CEO of BioAdvance, touches on social injustice and the urgency of addressing health disparities. The social injustice side, what I'd love to see, and I'm not seeing tons of signs yet, but our industry has got to take on health disparities because nobody else can. Like everybody has to take on economic disparities, every sector, every industry, so including healthcare. But in addition, healthcare the healthcare industry has to take on health disparities. And I'd love to see more companies consciously sort of articulating, this is how we want to do clinical trials, or this is how we're thinking about building our software so that it's accessible to certain kinds of communities. I mean, I'd really love to see more people consciously trying to address in their own micro way, because it's just going to take lots of little efforts that together make one big effort. Um, so I'd like to see more of that. I think that to me is, is just a fiduciary obligation of our industry. And I think they, I think it's now becoming 
people are now realizing it. So I'm hoping to see that um, as a major, um, major trend going forward. I haven't seen it yet, except people are grappling with it and what to do and trying to think about it. So fingers crossed. Not only has the virus exposed these issues, but we continue to observe this racial inequity in the rollout of the vaccine. Dr. Seema Yasmin exposes these issues and recognizes the hypocrisy in the vaccination process. Think about how, yes, some communities of color are hesitant to get COVID vaccines. Some are very much desperate to get vaccinated. And there are all sorts of issues around access to vaccines as we're seeing just the same, same patterns over and over again. We're kind of aware of these things, but then we'll put the onus on those communities. Like, you should trust us. Why don't right. you sign up for clinical trials? Why don't you turn up for, to get vaccinated when we're actually not putting vaccination centers in the predominantly Black or Latinx neighborhoods, you know, very much? Or we're not doing our part to say, yep, we have done these things in the past. Or you know, even if we haven't done them, we're part of a system and a profession that has legitimized unethical experimentation and non-consensual experimentation. And here's how we might prevent that from reoccurring. We haven't done that work, right? But we're quick to tell people, why don't you sign up to be the you know, not enough states are reporting vaccination coverage by race and yep. ethnicity, right? And um, some states are saying that the state law prohibits them um, sharing that information. But the last time I looked a few days ago, I'd seen data from 17 states and two cities that were sharing that information on vaccination coverage in their states or in their cities by race and ethnicity. And all 17 states in both of the cities were vaccinating black residents at a much lower rate than white residents. And one example is North Carolina, where black Americans make up like 22% of the res uh, of the citizens of that state. And actually black people make up 26% of frontline workers in North Carolina, meaning they're you know, disproportionately exposed to the virus and more vulnerable. But this was about a few days ago, but the last I looked, um, black North Carolinans had only been vaccinated, or uh, the proportion of people who'd been vaccinated in North Carolina, only 11% of them were black. So it's just, again, disproportionate to exposure and vulnerability and even disproportionate just to the numbers in terms of population. In many cases, COVID has moved up the timeline of healthcare. Wellink's co-founder, Ellen Sue explains some of these changes and anticipates that they are here to stay. There's a lot of people in, in a very complicated system that stand to benefit from more efficiency in the system and, and centralized resources. So for us, it's been an issue of, you know, how do we identify those people? Remote monitoring and telemedicine, you know, that's something that we've, we had been talking about even January, February. That conversation has basically become the only conversation. That is how can we do this? What can we build that helps us manage this? How can we deliver care to people in their homes? And I think, you know, with COVID happening, it's something that the healthcare system was going towards, I would say, you know, there you saw increasing acceptance of those services, increasing utilization, and then it suddenly became required. We had to do this. There was no kind of, there was no other way to get care. And so it's really moved up that timeline, I would say probably by about three years at least. So something that you would say, okay, this might be what healthcare looks like in five years, like 
the regulatory hurdles, the payment hurdles, the technology hurdles, like those are being cleared one after another to the point where, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of these things and a lot of these transformations start to happen within the next two to three years. One of the things that we're trying to do is actually get into those rooms where those decisions are being made. You know that there's that there's people in rooms making these decisions, drafting these policies, like drafting these regulations or relaxing these regulations and figuring out like, who are those people? Can we get in that room? Can we advocate for patients in that process? You know, a lot of times it's the insurance companies, the insurers, the large hospital systems, the government, the kind of healthcare administrators are in those rooms, but patients aren't represented really. And so we want to get in those rooms and kind of figure out what are the policies coming down the line and how can we translate that into things that make sense and things that are, again, human-centered in that whole process. That's a lot of the stuff coming down the line. Remote patient monitoring is going to be huge. And and I would say like a bigger innovation is from the doctor side. Like how do we incentivize doctors to monitor patients remotely? So much of the stuff that they do in the clinic now, you know, what can you do actually at home and how can you increase those touch points with patients while also decreasing the amount of time that you have to spend, for example, taking notes or filing paperwork or figuring out billing. So that's something that we're looking at. They came out with some new remote patient monitoring codes last year that doctors could bill for in terms of you know the time that they were spending monitoring patients. I think those codes are going to revamp and and I think those the insurance companies are going to look and say like we need to actually make this a priority to figure out because we want more people to do this because we look at this and say this is a more effective way to deliver care and also make sure people aren't falling through the gaps. Because of COVID and the vaccine, there has been a shift of public focus towards pharma and biotech. Sarah Naim explains this shift and the current public perception of the industry. I think it's been great to see people recognizing the importance of scientific and medical innovation through COVID. It's been gratifying to see that the, the pharma industry at one point was more vilified than the tobacco industry. And that's really sad for an industry that's supposed to be producing drugs that help people and um, make them healthier and hopefully prevent them from needing to do as much inpatient care and and preserve life and extend life. So the the perception has changed. I think it's going to be important for the drug industry to capitalize on that and to show that they're good actors, that they're pricing therapies at reasonable levels, that they're uh, you know, working uh, as much as possible, you know, hand in hand with government agencies in this vaccine process, as well as all the COVID therapeutics. And, and I do think that overall, um, the industry has done a, a good job of that. And that the view of the industry by the public is beginning to change. And specifically, the the view on do we need to keep innovating? That is, we wouldn't have uh, these you know two approved vaccines with EUAs. If we hadn't, there hadn't been massive amounts of uh, investment in mRNA over the past decade. I mean, the Moderna required so much uh, capital, and now it's obviously paying off. And, and mRNA is a really powerful uh, modality that can be used across a lot of diseases. But I think that's really where the industry has to work closely with the administration, with lawmakers, to help them understand what can dampen innovation, what can uh, help innovation continue, where can we uh, 
remove some of these, you know, uh, bad actors or take take that out of the system so that people aren't right raising drug prices unfairly on things that are life saving treatments that you know like a, a retrofin type example, but where we're also preserving the incentives for innovation. It's uh, it's going to be important to have those those dialogues and to make also to make lawmakers aware of this whole really important group of companies that's between the NIH, which is mostly basic research, a little bit of translational, but not very much. And then, you know, big pharma, which do, you know, have these these big revenues. But in the middle, there are a lot of this innovation. These really new platforms are being pushed forward by small venture-backed companies that are, you know, pre-commercial and will require lots of capital to get to the point where, you know, we have companies like Moderna that are launching extraordinary innovations that, you know, can potentially save, you know, save uh, our economy and our, our, you know, the earth, uh, which is dramatic, but it is kind of true, <laughs> given the moment that we're in. To conclude this conversation, Dr. Dana Kans declares that she is hopeful for the future. Despite the world being in a difficult situation, she is optimistic that the disparities highlighted by the pandemic will continue to be areas of focus for government and private resources in the future. I am hopeful. I think the numbers do speak for themselves. Like the past few years have have set equal rights back in in many ways. And I'm looking forward to the new administration in the U.S. unwinding some of these policy setbacks. Um, I'm worried, like many others, about how much women have been set back in the aftermath of COVID-19, um, having borne the brunt of the job losses and lost out in many ways on funding opportunities where um, investors are really just scrambling to support existing companies in their portfolio so that they don't go under. And um, so fortunately, I think, unfortunately, I think we're in a very difficult position now. Um, but I do hope that efforts not only continue, but are quadrupled in terms of the governmental and private resources that are earmarked to support underrepresented business founders. And I think um, that think tanks and um, press around research coming out to document these disparities and create awareness for them are so important so that people really do understand, hey, here's the state of affairs right now. Here's where we are in the post-pandemic um, timeframe and here's what needs to be done. Um, so, so yeah, I think that, that creating that awareness um, and those calls to action is now more important than, than ever, really. COVID has challenged the world in ways we could not have imagined. Through the countless trials and tribulations of the past year, there's also been growth. It is inspiring to see how people, especially those in healthcare, have adapted to this pandemic and it is exciting to know that healthcare and the world will be changed for the better because of this experience.